0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jason Ackerman, co-founder of the online grocer Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct is one of the first companies to disrupt the traditional food supply chain by sourcing food where it's produced and delivering it to consumers without going through additional retailers. Fresh Direct makes deliveries in the New York metro region, in parts of New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Fresh Direct launched in 2002 from its headquarters in a former paper plant in Long Island City, Queens. Prior to starting Fresh Direct, Jason was an investment banker at Donaldson, Lufkin & Jenrette, focused on supermarket retailers. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start by kind of visualizing what your headquarters look like. How would you describe it to somebody who hasn't been there?
1: Well, you've seen the, the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Well, uh, imagine that. So uh, rather than having rivers of chocolate, there are uh, rivers of all sorts of food flowing. Uh, We have kitchens making prepared meals and bakery and meat cutting and fish cutting and cheese caves and produce ripening rooms. So it's just a whole uh, range of experience of food.
0: The temperatures range from almost 60 degrees to minus 36 degrees or?
1: Uh, Minus 20. Ice cream is happy at minus 20, and we have uh, about nine different temperature zones in the building.
0: This is Celsius?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) How many miles of conveyor belts do you have in your warehouse?
1: Uh, Many, many miles. Hmm. Many miles. Lots of sorting machines and conveyor belts and and lots Hmm. of technology.
0: You have an internal rating system. Can you tell me about that?
1: You know, when it comes to produce... Uh, one of the great things about uh, being in a physical store is you get to pick and choose. Well, online, we do the picking for you. So we have a quality team that every single morning uh, rates all of the produce, they walk the lines, they taste it, they, they look at it, they give it a note one through 10, and that immediately publishes on the site. So when you're shopping that day, you know how our quality team rates that specific piece of produce that day.
0: The business has not always been this streamlined. You worked on a business plan in 1999. Tell me about your wife's thoughts on the business in the early days or when you were kind of conjuring up the idea.
1: Well, you know, go back to in the the 1990s, my wife, and we were both like real foodies, uh, she would go to probably six different shops. She had this cheese shop she liked, the pasta shop she liked, and she got her produce from a certain store, and and there wasn't a single place that all of the great fresh foods were procured. And when I I told her about that we're gonna start this online business, she goes, oh, honey, that seems great. And very patronizing, like, there's no way I'm gonna use this, because I have my stores. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, but if we satisfy you with respect to your quality needs, you know, do we have a shot? And she was actually quite skeptical about the business.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and others were quite skeptical, too, because at the time there had been a company, Webvan, which we know is the poster child or the reciprocal of the poster child of those days um, that spent about a billion dollars on, you know, online groceries. How did you say to yourself, oh, we're going to be different?
1: There's one real huge difference where others have said, hey, let's build an online delivery business. The idea was actually about how do we get quality food better than the retail store? And we looked at the supply chain and realized that if we build these direct relationships and do our own manufacturing and don't have inventory in all these stores and have better cold chain and make sure the food's prep right, that actually the food has a better chance of being fresher than it does at the store. So the root of the business really started from how do we make food better, not how do we make a home delivery.
0: At the time, you were a banker at DLJ, focused on supermarkets, and you met Joe Fidelli, who at the time, he had just left Fairway He had actually helped to co-found, and there's some controversy around this, the Uptown Fairway. A store that he had run was called By Choice, and basically it was a precursor to this kind of producer-to-consumer model. How is it that you met Joe?
1: So actually Joe was working uh, and a part owner of the fairway at 125th Street, if you remember being a New Yorker. It was the kind of first place you'd walk into a cooler to buy your meat, and Joe was a great food guy. Um, and I had left banking at that time and was looking f- to uh, bring on a food executive to build some concepts that I had. And so I walked into the fairway store because I thought it was a great store. and i said, who's the who's running this place?" and they pointed me to the office and I went upstairs and uh, met Joe and Joe and I just kind of literally spent the entire day talking Mm -hmm. and we really hit it off around the business and that's how we connected.
0: You partnered in 1999 but it wasn't until 2002 that you actually started making your first deliveries to Roosevelt Island and Battery Park initially. What were some of the hiccups in those earliest days that you can remember?
1: I mean besides everything? Exactly. (laughs) So first of all, when, when Joe and I had gotten together and we were actually toying with opening retail stores and then we, we kind of jointly developed the idea of, of making this an online business, we didn't really have any idea of how to construct the business. So the first idea was we would build a 10,000 square foot warehouse and we would get stuff from the wholesale markets, and, and, but we really didn't really know how big it was. But after a while we decided that this is either going to be a huge business or a total bust. And so we went for it, and we we bought this building in Long Island City, and we constructed a three hundred thousand square foot warehouse, put in all this automation and uh, It was really trying to figure out how to how do you do this business, how do you build all this stuff because we were nervous that once we launched, if it took off, we wouldn't have time to figure it out so Um, It took us almost a solid two and a half years to actually take the paper and construct the business.
0: So you really did a lot of things on the front end rather than kind of leaning on your heels and kind of seeing what would happen in a way.
1: We we made a bet. Yeah. You know, we, we definitely got aggressive in terms of the scale of the bet that we were gonna make and the investment that we made to put all the upfront technology in production. We built kitchens and bakeries and cutting facilities and technology before we had any revenue.
0: Now you had $100 million that you got mostly from friends and family. I know your uncle's Peter Ackerman who supplied the majority of the capital.
1: It was both a combination of of family as well as friends. Having been a banker, one of the the few skills it gave me was actually raising money, and we were able to go out and and speak to friends. Uh, And honestly, when we had gone out to raise money to the marketplace, the general marketplace, it was kind of right around when Webvan was collapsing. Um, and I was pretty much a three-headed dragon. So people thought we were actually out of our minds. So it was really difficult to raise the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just cobbled together from friends and raised a bunch and uh, and launched it.
0: And I mentioned Peter Ackerman. He's your, your father's brother. And he's known uh, in the, I think it was the early 1980s for working with Michael Bilkin uh, in the junk bond area, selling junk bonds. What was his perspective on what you were doing?
1: Well, he was head of capital markets at Drexel with Mike. And so he was responsible for a lot of these, the these uh, what's called sponsorships. So he followed the KKRs of the world. And so he had uh, been involved in probably 400 acquisitions. And a lot of them actually were in the supermarket sector. And, uh, you know, we had been talking about this concept I brought in him. Initially, he was skeptical. But after the work we put into it, uh, he felt it was a very interesting bet. And, and uh, I had to make a pitch like any other investor to him.
0: You spent the majority of the $100 million on building this very state-of-the-art plant. And then what happens?
1: And then we hit the go button. <laughs> and then we had four customers. <laughs> it was the world's biggest bodega. It was very actually uh, nerve-wracking because mm-hmm. you, know, you spend all this money and you have all this anticipation and then you turn it on. Yeah. And what we did is we, we went to Roosevelt Island first. Mm-hmm. And we, we we built these uh, fruits and vegetable eight foot rubber costumes, and we we dressed up a bunch of people, and we put them onto the islands, and we jumped around and said, "Here's fifty dollars of free food and fresh food." We didn't give away uh, bottled water, just fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. and we we scared a lot of children, and uh, we uh, but we got it known and quickly. Uh, We got some traction in the marketplace, and it was a lot of learns. Very small at that time, but we learned how to kind of reach some customers.
0: Really, it was like as grassroots as you're dressing up in a Fruit of the Loom thing?
1: Block by block.
0: So, And why Roosevelt Island? I I feel like the only way I know to get there is the tram. I mean, I I know that's kind of close to Long Island City. Well, there were two reasons. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there were two reasons. One is... Um, It was actually close to our building because we're in Long Island City. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love Rosewood Island, but honestly, if we really messed up, I don't think anyone was going to know about it. And so it was kind of an opportunity for us to, to do it. And if we made mistakes without you know, New York really talking too much about it.
0: How did word spread? How did the word get out? Because I don't remember your spending a lot on advertising, or maybe you did.
1: No, we actually, we actually didn't. We had a, a really simple idea. We already spent all of our money building the facility, so we had no money left for marketing. Um, but we had really two strategies. One is we said, look, we really believe that if people experience the product, they're going to love it and so we said rather than spending a lot of advertising dollars we're going to give away the food we had a fifty dollar free food offer and a hundred dollar free food offer where literally you get a hundred dollars of free food and you don't have to spend any money in this free delivery and it was so outrageous when people did it like wait a minute i just got a hundred bucks of steaks and and lobsters and all this stuff and you would tell your friend because it was so outrageous. And so we really relied on this kind of wow factor on such a large offer. Mm-hmm. But it was the product mm-hmm. that we got into people's hands. And that's that's really how we built it. And we did it block by block. We made a lot of mistakes along the way. But we uh, we, we built $60 million of revenue our first year. Then we did $120 million our second year. Then $180 million our third year. So it actually was building up very fast.
0: Was there sort of a pivot moment in the press that helped to get more demand or No, you know
1: it's so shocking the press was very difficult with us you know I think in the in the early days when New York City was ruled by the great classic retailers of New York Fairway and other players um, and the New York Times had you know some great uh, food writers building an online food business the food writers really didn't believe that great food and online, could be together. And it took a very long time for the food writing community to take us seriously because it was very against the grain of how they wanted to think about this. And so it was not an easy road convincing uh, those writers to uh, take us serious.
0: What about operationally were things that you needed to tweak?
1: More than tweak. It was, it was quite, a, quite an experience about learning about the customers. So I would say the, the hardest thing for us is that was actually the human capital. So we required about 500 new people a year Mm -hmm. to keep up with the growth. And we did a very bad job of training and onboarding and human resource management. And with over 100% turnover, we actually had to hire like 1,200 people every Mm -hmm. year.
0: How about, was it $600,000 in parking tickets? (laughs) Is that that true?
1: That's a very low number. (laughs) We get a lot of parking tickets. Still? Still. New York City relies very, very heavily on parking tickets as a major source of revenue for New York City. Mm-hmm.
0: Just going back to the, the the hiring, you had an immigration audit in the early days where you lost 200 workers or so who were undocumented. Was that part of kind of the growing pains of the HR uh, human capital issue?
1: Yeah, you know, going back, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, there wasn't a big database, government database you can kind of check. So we would bring in people and we would get their cards and they'd give us their cards and we'd fill out the paperwork. Um, but we didn't realize that a lot of the cards were actually fake cards, not real cards. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the most wonderful, incredible people. We had whole families who work with us. And that event happened and we gathered everyone together. Like, look, immigration says that they're going to come do an audit. What we need everyone to do is bring back in their cards. Mm -hmm. We want to validate all the paperwork and make sure because, God forbid, they come in and the paperwork's not right. You know, we don't want anyone to get in trouble. And literally the next day, several hundred people didn't show back up for work.
0: There was some public acrimony with your co-founder, Joe he had a rather public feud with his former partner, Fairway. I'll leave it at that. But, you know, you were in a market with sharp elbows. I mean, it wasn't just Fairway, who was kind of threatened by your presence, but even Gristides. And supermarkets are a very low-margin business. I think especially in New York City, it is fierce. How, how did that play out? Um, can you give some examples of that?
1: I'd be very cautious to give you the real stories because it is a down-and-dirty business. I think a lot of players in New York were very uninterested in Fresh right being part of the, the food group in New York. And through mechanisms on the supply side and otherwise, there was a lot of behind the scenes pressure for us not to be in business.
0: Any other color you could give to that?
1: Well, look, I think that most stores will, will attempt to kind of threaten to not, you know, carry your product if you supply other players. And there was a lot of you know, people threatening to, to not want to sell to us because if they did, they lose their existing relationships.
0: Producers who were threatened by the existing incumbents said that maybe we shouldn't sell to you because I lose my shelf space at this traditional retailer.
1: Right, and you're not basically. known and they are, so they, they felt risk, and we had a lot of that pressure.
0: You were kind of swimming with two bathing suits in that, you know, in the early days, not only were you launching this new company, but it was kind of, an it was a new concept, and e-commerce wasn't as mature as it is today Um, so people even are being afraid to like use their credit card online like can you talk to me about like those kind of uh, systematic obstructions
1: well that's you know we're really dating ourselves with this conversation because it we forget when you go back to the late 1990s that there were actually these same fears people were afraid in fact When I started the business, I didn't have an email account. And I had my chief technology officer fax things to my house. And he kind of freaked out. It's like, look, you're starting a commerce company. You're going to have to kill your fax. But we had all sorts of ideas because we were nervous that online was not a comfortable place yet. And so we had ideas on sending DVDs and catalogs to people. And so it was very much at that very early stage of comfort. And we did get a lot of calls about credit card security and all sorts of issues like that back Mm. then.
0: Uh, And you weren't convinced yourself, right, that yes, you'd be a delivery service, but how committed were you to the online component?
1: Well, you know, as retailers, we deeply understood and believed that great quality fresh food was a general driver to a store. What we didn't know is that if we delivered that with the barrier of online and not touching and feeling, how much would that impact? So, but to be honest, with you, we we had no idea. Mm-hmm. We had no idea how big or small or how consumers were going to react.
0: You mentioned that mistakes in the early days were the norm rather than the exception. What are some examples of those? We talked about parking tickets, but what are some mistakes in the early days? Well,
1: I remember uh, the big one of the first lessons is just how much New York customers just want what they want and there's no room for error. So I remember it was literally the third day and this woman had ordered some food and she'd ordered 23 cans of canned artichokes. And apparently we only shipped her 15 cans. She calls customer service, customer service was right by my desk. The agent's like, look, Jason, you gotta take this customer because she's freaking out. She's like, listen, I'm having a dinner party I ordered these things. This is really important to me. If you don't get it here within an hour, I'm calling the New York Times and your business is over. I'm like, oh, my God, my business is over. So I call up the supplier. I drive up to the Bronx. We get have them open up the warehouse. I get the nine extra cans of things. I get in my car. I drive to her house. I'm like running to get to her house. I'm thinking there's this big dinner party. She's got to make make the stuff that she's going to make. Ring the door, but she opens up, and she's in her nightgown. <laughs> And I'm like, Here, here's, your, here's your artichokes. And um, she's like, thank you. Oh, my. And, you know, of the many lessons, it's, look, people don't care if you make a mistake. They just want their stuff. There's no toleration. And they were going to tell you anything because yeah. they just wanted what they wanted.
0: Was it your feeling that, that things were working despite all these like hurdles here and there that, you know, when you look beyond that, like, oh, you know, we are getting customers. Like, what was going on in your head?
1: Well, actually, once we got through the initial test phase in, in, in Barry Park and Rosewood Island, we started rolling out in Manhattan. We took those big jumping costumes. We went literally to Murray Hill and we went... When I tell you block for block, we had a five-block grid of the entire New York City. And we would take these guys out there and we'd go on the streets. And it was amazing how fast we built up a database of customers. Mm. And by the time we had made it to the Upper East Side and we're about to go to the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. We had sixty thousand pre-registered customers on the Upper West and Lower West side before we even opened. So I was no longer worried about how big this business was going to be.
0: Okay. So the the demand was there.
1: I was just scared to death how I'm gonna actually service this business and not and get the experience right. You know, which was always a big challenge. And there were other moments that we really learned like what happens in snowstorms. In fact I don't know if you recall when Sandy, Superstorm Sandy came around, our facility was actually quite close to the water lines when it happened. And uh, during that storm, we actually lost about 75% of all of our trucks because they were parked too close to the water. We kind of came in the next day and uh, our trucks didn't work and we had actually no way to make deliveries. You know, there were there were moments like that where you know you just don't even know where and how you're going to kind of get through the next day.
0: So what did you do with all the food?
1: You know, at that time, remember a lot of electricity was out in New York, and I would say it was probably the biggest single waste event <laughs> in all of New York. Uh, refrigeration wasn't working a lot of places, so yeah, there was a lot of food. Not only was the food a lot of food had to get thrown away, deliveries couldn't get made, and you couldn't even get food into New York. In right. fact, you couldn't get fuel into mm. New York. You couldn't even fuel your trucks. It was probably the biggest and most interesting learning experience, having to kind of resort the business after that storm.
0: And you gave away a bunch of the food.
1: Yeah, well, actually, in our business, we do. We, we formed a long time ago a great partnership with City Harvest. One of the things about our business, because we don't have lots of stores that you have to pick up, we're one facility. So, City Harvest basically lives in our facility every single day that they're there, and everything that we don't sell to the customers that we don't think should go out to the customers, it goes right onto a City Harvest truck, mm-hmm. and it's out into the, into, the, uh, into the food banks right away that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so almost all of Fresh Direct's food gets consumed either through the consumers or through the food banks.
0: Do you have any, you know, just specific examples of um, some suppliers whom you work with?
1: You know, for us, the stories of the producers is really about connecting with the passion. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were in Arizona at a cantaloupe farm. And um, how many people have picked up a cantaloupe? And you're kind of looking around. You're like, all right, you're pressing it or you're scratching it. You're like, how do I know if it's ripe? Right. Nobody really knows how to do it. True. So we're at the farm and we said to the woman who owns the farm, and says, how do you know when it's ripe? Yeah. And, and secondly is, why is half the, the cantaloupe's ripe and half are not? She kind of explained to us that, well, see that field over there? Well, I got to, in order for me to hit the price that the retailers want, I got to cut that whole field all at once. Some of them are ripe, some of them are not, but I can't afford to go back four or five times. Mm -hmm. So, well, gee, I bet our customers would love to have ripe cantaloupes every single time. Mm -hmm. Could could you do that? And she said, well, I I know how to do it, but that might cost a little bit more money. We said, okay, well, tell us Mm -hmm. what it'll take. So uh, a day later she came back and she said, all right, it'll cost this much more a melon. we said, good, we'll take the whole field. And we said, what we'll do is we'll brand your farm and then we'll do a guaranteed right program for our customers so that we can shop with confidence. And she was super excited because she got, you know, people who are passionate about the food, she got to pick a perfect you know, cantaloupe and she got to put her name on it and it becomes now our number one selling program. I'm Jessica
0: Harris, you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jason Ackerman, the co-founder of the online grocer Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct works directly with farmers and chefs and bakers to deliver fresh ingredients and prepared meals to consumers. Fresh Direct also has a service called Food Kick, which makes same day deliveries of simple items rather than having to order a day in advance. You're very fortunate that you had the moxie to invest in the infrastructure, did you have any precedent that you were looking to to say, you know what, we're gonna just go big? Or was it kind of on a whim?
1: I think the days in banking where you finance a lot of big companies and so forth, the dollars or the idea didn't scare you. If it was big and we didn't have the facility to do it, then we knew we'd be in more trouble. So we said it's better to bet big and have it be a little smaller than the other way around or else we couldn't actually service it. And it turned out to be the right bet.
0: And you also had to invest heavily in just your your technology and inventory systems. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you evolved?
1: Well, actually, we we really had um, uh, three big things going on during the, the build. I hired like 40 great food professionals from all over New York City, the best of the best. And we had this group of food people. And then we hired technical engineers. Um, So we actually built up a team around 50 software engineers. Mm -hmm. Um, And we implemented SAP, which is a big manufacturing system. I hired engineers who did conveyor control. So we actually built up all that. And we we spent probably $25 million just on systems, Mm -hmm. technology and systems, day one. We realized that a lot of what we did, some of it was right, some of it was wrong. And we rebuilt, uh, enhanced, and particularly things like Last Mile distribution, you know, the trucking and the routing, we've really evolved that piece of technology that we didn't understand day one.
0: What's an example of that?
1: Well, we've got hundreds of vehicles running all throughout the tri-state area. They're by appointments. We will go to the same house 17 times a day. You know, when we were first delivering, we really didn't have any technology in the field. And we basically had, you remember the old Nextel push button phones? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we go out the trucks and and, uh, hey, Joey, how you doing? Are you making the deliveries on time? Yeah, boss, deliveries are going great. And we're like, okay, we think we're running on time. We had no idea if maybe Joey was actually just having a hamburger with his friend right now was actually not making deliveries. And we really had no idea what was going on in the field. We just wait for customers to call and say, hey, where's my delivery? And we mm-hmm. say, well, I don't know, I thought he made it. Right. So we learned that you know we had to get knowledge. There are a lot of times where we had to put in all sorts of technologies to keep track of and really understand exactly what was going on in the field. And so over time, we've migrated to a huge amount of tracking Mm -hmm. and scanning and devices to know at any one time where everybody is so that, for example, if we are running late, we know it in advance and we can actually call the customer before we're late to say, hey, this is when he's expected to be there. It's gonna be a little late today.
0: Do you have a background at all in operations? Because you were, you know, this banker, uh, which certainly is very hands off with all of that capital.
1: Yeah. Well, look, as an investment banker, you 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 have certain skills, and you have lots of skills that you you don't have. Right. Those that you don't have is running anything. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, I was pretty clueless. Um, but it seems like instinctively. Well, go ahead. Well, yeah. we it, truth is, we um, we have had a family business since I don't know a hundred years. Uh, manufacturing. And and as a kid, I grew up in my dad's factory. I worked in the summertime, thousands of hourly workers. And kind of that was always in my blood. I used to follow my dad around the factory, and I worked there in the summer. So kind of making things was a bit more in my blood than banking was.
0: You mentioned your father. He made um, books of fabric swatches. What was the name or is the name of the company? Uh,
1: It's no longer here, um, but it was Economy Color Card. Basically, when you went to go redecorate and you wanted to flip through all the different fabric samples, you got the hardware store. We made those books. So Mm -hmm. it was a lot of cutting and correlating and design and, and putting the books together and and uh, a lot of uh, automation and manual labor, and uh, big factories throughout New Jersey and Brooklyn.
0: Now, when you say that, you know that rubbed off on you. Is there anything in particular, or some examples that you you really transferred?
1: Well, you know, he he. When when I was fifteen, he made me work over the summer on the plant floor uh, and running this coalition line. And there was when I tell you twenty seven different nationalities on the floor, and I had to run two lines that had about seventy workers on them, and it was really. My first experience of understanding the cultural differences and how they worked and how they saw each other when I didn't really see or understand the differences, and I actually, as a manager, had to make choices on how to build teams relative to culture backgrounds and other things and how well are they wouldn't work together, and uh, it was really an eye-opening experience for me,
0: especially then when you're faced with the same human capital issues in the early days.
1: Yeah, and the business actually isn't much different than what my dad did. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, behind the you know, the, the Wizard of Oz Curtain, there's still 3,000 associates who are making food and cutting food and packing boxes and making delivery. And, and those associates are the ones who, who get and, and do all the work on behalf of the customers. And, you know, they've got to be happy and they've got to know how to work together and they've got to feel valued. And, you know, a lot of that came from, you know, working back then with my dad.
0: Was there any sense that you might go into the fabric swatch book business? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I had this, uh, he had this younger brother, Peter, who was 10 years younger, and he went into this thing called banking, and it seemed a lot cooler than making fabric books. So I landed up going in that direction, and then I uh, eventually came back.
0: By the way, at this time, you're raising three children. Uh, what was going on at home during all of this?
1: Well, you know what's interesting? I left banking because I was traveling 48 weeks out of the year, leaving Sunday night, coming back on Friday. And I said to my wife, who I love dearly, I said, this is just no way I can be a dad yeah. and, and do this. So um, building a business in New York, I can work 12 hours a day, but I can see my kids for breakfast and see them at home, you know, at night. And that's kind of what I did. And I, I see them every day. Do your kids
0: shop? Go to the grocery store? Well, or...
1: my kids don't go into stores. Yeah. Um, in fact, if my wife goes into Whole Foods, my kids are like, dad, mom went to Whole Foods, but she told me not to tell you. <laughs> That's great. Um, So, yeah, our family does not go grocery shopping. But I'm in stores Mm -hmm. every week because Mm -hmm. you're in retail. Mm -hmm. Um, But your relationship with food around where food comes from could be, you know, it's important to teach kids this.
0: Leadership was not the most constant uh, in these years, it seems. So Joe ran the – he was the CEO for the first – let's see, he left in 2004. So he ran the business for the first – For
1: the first year of, of opening, yeah.
0: And then where is
1: he in the world now? I do not know. You know, when we started the business, I built a lot of the technology and the, you know, facility operations and Joe was the food guy and we split up the responsibilities and we landed up uh, parting ways. Um, But I was probably 33 at the time. And and while I understood every guts of the business and having been an investment banker, um, I, I wasn't exactly saying, hey, I'm qualified to be a CEO. And I'm very much a, an open book person, and so I really wanted other people to come in that I could kind of learn from. I knew our business, but actually running a company was something that it wasn't something I've done before. So over the course of the next bunch of years, we've had several people come into the business who took on the CEO role, and I you know, played a, a very serious role from president to, to chief financial officer and, and operations and so forth. Um, and then, you know, five six years ago, I eventually then took on the full time CEO role, and, and no longer brought in those uh, those people.
0: Do you feel like God? I wish I had done that sooner. I just wish I had had more confidence in myself.
1: In retrospect, you can always uh, say that, and there's been a lot of people who encouraged me to do that. But, you know, I'm uh, I'm very cautious about um, you know what I know and what I don't know, and and I think I've always been more of a student in life, and mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed learning from other people. I think now I feel like I'm. I'm so far ahead of where I was back then in terms of understanding, you know, leadership in the executive position.
0: You mentioned that you were, you know, you're a student in life. What were you like uh, actually as a student growing up in New Jersey? How would people, how would your friends or, or your parents kind of describe you?
1: Um, very kind of in my head. So thinking through problems, I would sit for days trying to work out and build models or other types of things. Um, I was a musician. I was an artist. But actually, in college. All I actually really wanted to do was be a ski instructor and play my guitar in Vail, Colorado. So I had, I had gotten to uh, gotten my Canadian uh, ski certificate as a ski instructor at a certain level so I can go right to teaching adults. And as far as I was concerned, when I was about 19 or 20, I was just going to teach skiing.
0: Now, you went to BU?
1: Went to Boston University, yeah.
0: When did that dream end?
1: I literally kind of said, huh, guitar in a ski shop or Thank investment you. banking? And uh, it was literally a, almost a coin toss, mm-hmm. and I landed up. Uh, I figured, you know what? If I go banking and make a little bit of money, I can always play my guitar. Yeah. If I play my guitar in a, in a, in a bar in Colorado, I may never leave. So mm-hmm. we're gonna go banking. What do you like to play on the guitar? Blues. I've. I've music is a big part of my family and my house uh, in Soho. We've got the drums, bass, all my guitars sitting around, and all my, my daughter's a great drummer, my son's a great guitar player, and and we uh, we jam all the time.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Jason Ackerman, the co-founder of Fresh Direct. I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch.